Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Jason Ryan. Dr. Ryan is a practicing cardiologist who received his MD and MPH degrees at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine in 2001. He's been a practicing cardiologist since 2008. He's also a faculty member at the UConn School of Medicine and is the founder and CEO of Boards and Beyond. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, I was just uh, noting that you're a, a lifer at UConn, a Husky. I'm just curious, do you mind just telling me a little bit about your background and kind of what you got you first interested in healthcare? Yeah, sure. So I'm from a town called Trumbull, Connecticut, and um, uh, I went to college in Pennsylvania at a school called Lehigh, and I studied chemical engineering there, actually had no inkling of ever being in healthcare. Um, in fact, there were a lot of pre-meds in my, some of my classes, like organic chemistry, and they sometimes drove me nuts because they were obsessed with getting ever the perfect grade on everything to get into med school. Um, however, after I graduated, I, I worked for a year for an engineering company, and I sort of could see the path ahead of me. Uh, it was a kind of a cubicle kind of job, wasn't that exciting. And so I started to reconsider my options. And, you know, I had some friends who were in med school who were liking it and did some shadowing. And so long story short, I, I applied to med school and I went to medical school at the University of Connecticut. Um, and so that's how I got into it. It was kind of a second choice, not the first thing I was going to do. Do you feel like your background kind of starting outside of medicine has influenced your journey at all? Yeah, I, I do. I think it helped a lot. Um, I mean, for starters, you know, I still have that sort of engineering mind of like fluid flowing through a pipe and things like that. And what little math there is in medicine never really bothered me. It also helped a lot that I worked for a year and I saw a lot of people miserable in their jobs. So when medicine got hard, you know, I never sort of said, gee, maybe there's this rosy, great place out there where I could have a real job. And I was always so glad to be in medicine and felt like I was better off. Jason, you started Boards and Beyond, which is a platform that helps a lot of medical students prepare for board exams. How did you come up with the idea to start that company? Yeah, great question. So I came to UConn in 2008. I was on the faculty as a cardiologist, but I also taught the medical students and they liked my teaching and they told me they liked my lectures and I got some awards. And then uh, one of my students who came to my clinic showed me Pathoma and he said, this is where I'm learning everything I learned from now. And I thought it was a freaking amazing thing. It was such a cool idea. You may or may not know, you know, in med school, there's only a limited amount of teaching you can do. There's a lot of faculty. Faculty have been in certain teaching roles for years. So I was this young, eager faculty who wanted to teach more, but there was only so much I could do. And so the idea of making videos felt like freeing. You know, I could teach whatever I want. So that was where I got the idea. I started looking into it. And uh, you know this as well as I do, that websites that stream videos behind a paywall are not cheap to build. And so, you know, there was sticker shock at realizing how complicated it would be to do something like this. But um, I have a lot of support from my family and we, you know, invested a bunch of money to build a website. And it took a long time for people to start using it for at least a year or two. I was just giving it away for free until people started to catch on and, and it started to become a thing. What are your learnings during that time, let's say from the start of the build out to the point where it started becoming a, a huge, huge driving force in the space? 
What are the big things you learned along the way that maybe you didn't know when you embarked on the journey? One of the biggest things I learned is, at least in this business of medical students, people only want to use something that the class before them used and says is worthwhile. So, you know, you can have the flashiest website and the coolest ad campaign, but it's not going to get much traction until really some years of students have used it and are telling the class behind them, okay, I use this. It helped me a lot. It's really a word of mouth business more than anything I can think of. With that in mind, I'm just curious, like, what are your plans as you go forward with Boards and Beyond? What are the areas that you want to grow and develop? So we have a full library of step one content with an associated question bank. The way I always learned is like when I go to a conference, you know, somebody will give a lecture on say echocardiography. And then at the end of the lecture, they'll have like five questions that they go through and the audience votes. And I've always found that to be just the most effective way to learn. You get content explained to you by an expert, and then you get to put it into practice yourself. So that's always been the idea of Boards and Beyond is a, a short lecture by video and then four or five questions to test yourself and make sure you've got the information. So we have that for step one, and now we're building it for the step two, three content, which is more clinical. It's probably about 80% of the way done for step two. So our goal is to finish that by the end of this year. That's awesome. And there's lots of different phrases for that, like flip classroom or blended classroom or what have you. But I'm curious, you know, as you do more and more of this, have you gotten feedback from faculty? And, and if so, like, what are their thoughts on applying it the way you just described? Faculty are a funny group because a lot of faculty feel like I can teach this stuff myself. And, you know, they feel like students don't need to go to resources like Osmosis or Boards and Beyond, even though a lot of students don't agree with that and they feel they need some help from somebody outside. I think faculty are coming around to the flipped classroom side of things. You know, they're, it's getting harder and harder to recruit faculty to teach because the demands for clinical medicine are so great that I think more and more schools are asking their faculty to record a video that the students can watch. And that's slowly replacing the sort of in-person teaching, which is just getting harder and harder to coordinate when faculty have patients to take care of. So, you know, I think it's coming along. We, we definitely have some institutional partners who like our videos and buy them for their students. I think a lot of other schools are still making their own content as well. What recommendations do you offer to schools that say like, you know, hey, how do we best incorporate this into what we're already doing? And can we train our faculty to do these kinds of videos for their students uh, just like you do? That's a good question. So no one's ever asked me to train anyone how to make a video. I'd be glad, I'd be glad to do that, but no one ever really has. Um, I think the schools that have bought it are schools that um, basically have enough funding to support their students and they know all their students are going to buy it anyway. So they've sort of bought it to help them along. And then there's a few schools where, you know, a faculty member will be running a class on say heart failure, and they'll assign the videos for students to give them an orientation before they come to class and maybe do an exercise together or learn more about it. What sort of advice do you give to students then that say like, hey, you know, I do need to learn this, not just for my exam, but, you know, maybe when I'm a cardiologist one day, how do I retain this information that I'm getting from the video or answer the questions? Like, how do I best study for exams, but also remember it years down the road? I love to tell this story to my students of, uh, I took the cardiology echocardiography boards and about a month after the test, 
I found one of my review books in my car, like under the cushion and I took it out and, and I opened it to a page and there's a lot of physics equations on the echocardiography board about sound waves and things like that. And I'd circled and starred this one equation. I could swear to the life of me, I'd never seen it before in my life, even though I had circled it and started a month earlier. And so I tell that story to remind students that information that you don't use regularly, you will quickly forget no matter what it is. You know, th there's things in my own videos, but I made the video like two years ago and a student will come up and ask me and I'll say, well, wait a second, you got to give me a minute to like reorient myself because I don't have the names of every single artery in the brainstem at my fingertips. That's not something I do every day. So if you accept that reality that you're going to mostly remember what you use every day, then it really helps you to build your study plan because let's say you're six months out, there's no point in memorizing all these little fine granular details. They're just going to spill out of your brain. That's when you need to make sure you understand the big picture. You know, how do these drugs work? How does this disease work? And then the month before your test is really a critical time. That's where you can memorize these things and they will stay in your brain so that you'll have them at your fingertips. But um, one of my students, she said to me, I feel like Dr. Ryan, I get stupider every day after step one, because just these facts just leave her brain that she had crammed in there. So, you know, accept that reality of the time limited nature of fine granular details that you don't use every day, and then build your study plan around that. It's funny you say that. I, I took a picture of myself the day of step one, just so I would know what I look like on the day that I had the most information in my head. <laughs> right. Smartest you'll ever be, right? There it is. Yeah, it's been a long downhill ever since then. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> so in terms of this framework of there's a lot of information you just don't use every day, I'm just curious, like, what if now you were advising NBME or these other kind of test makers? Like, what thoughts do you have from that standpoint? Like, do you believe these tests as structured today are serving the function that they need to? Or do you feel like there are some tweaks or changes or modifications you would recommend to be made? Yeah, I mean, if, if I were king for a day, I would immediately make these tests open book because that's the reality of the world we practice in. So my grandmother was actually a physician. She graduated in 1940 from medical school. And um, when I was a little kid, she would practice medicine and she had all these books on her shelves. And so if she didn't know a fact immediately, there was no way she could easily look it up. She would have to go to a library, you know. So in her age, you had to have information immediately at your fingertips, names of drugs, you know, diagnoses, tests you're going to order. This is a totally new world now, but we're still testing like we practice in that world. So in the current world, the best doctor may not know the second line antibiotic for you know, some rare infection, but is super skilled at looking that information up quickly because he or she has a framework for what they're trying to do for the patient and knows how to access the information. And that's what we should be testing because then you would really get at mimicking clinical care. When you have a patient, you have a limited amount of time to deal with that patient, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. Can you quickly look up what you need to look up and not have it memorized at your fingertips? Um, I've met a few people who are involved in, you know, board writing and asked them this question, and it doesn't seem like this is on the horizon, but boy, I, I wish it would be because I think that would mimic the reality of the world we practice in. Yeah, very similar thoughts. I've always felt like open book makes 100% sense. If you want the test to proxy reality, then proxy reality. Right. Agreed. You can't look things up for hours. You'll never finish the test. So it also tests your ability to triage the information and not get down in the weeds. So it really would be great if that, that ever happened. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm curious, what are your bits of advice for folks that are now thinking about, you know, I'm a practicing physician, more and more CME is, is happening kind of at my fingertips, MOC, maintenance and certifications happening, you know, with these kind of quarterly assessments. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Like, do you feel like that's kind of a move in the right direction where it's happening on more frequent intervals versus kind of these long 5, 10 year cycles? That's a tough question to answer. I, I mean, I dread recertification exams. On the one hand, there is some value to like pausing from being in the trenches and sort of going back to the books and refreshing your memory on some of the basics. On the other hand, it's really hard to find a time to do that with the demands that are placed on us for patient care. So while I appreciate them trying to break it up into smaller bits and pieces, having to constantly be recertifying every four months or six months uh, is a real burden on people. Also, these exams are very expensive and the amount of money we have to sink into them, it's usually not covered by our employers. I think it's a thing that makes physicians feel like we don't matter, like we're not that important. You know, they wouldn't treat people they respected by making them pay $3,000 every couple of years and sit for an eight-hour exam. So I really wish they'd find a better way to allow you to document that you're keeping yourself up to date without having to pay so much money for these exams. Going back to what you said earlier about being king for a day, let's say that you had two days. You've already done yeah. the first day. <laughs> now you're on your second day and you can fix this system. Is there another profession that you look at and you think, gosh, they, they've got it figured out. Maybe, maybe it's folks that are pilots or other industries. Like, Do you feel like there's any sort of solution here that would make the person feel respected, to your point, yeah. but it would also kind of accomplish this idea of kind of keeping people up to date on information? I mean, if you could create very popular CME and just make it mandatory, that would be really nice. What's popular for one person may not be the same for another person, but most doctors I know don't mind keeping current and attending grand rounds and learning about new treatments and, and doing some form of CME. So I think the way it's delivered is not always uh, the most effective way, and it's hard for people to get the CME credits they need. But that seems to me to be the way to do it, is to just say, you, you must keep up to date in your field, and these, these are the ways that you can do it. And some of them are going to be enjoyable and not too difficult for you to do. Switching gears a bit. But also kind of thinking about the healthcare system broadly, you know, COVID-19 is still here. Things obviously got a lot better in the last week, in the U.S. at least, but it's still here. And I think we've realized a lot of broken elements of our healthcare system. Maybe we knew about them before, but kind of brought it to the fore. And certainly the general public is more aware of them. What do you feel are some steps that we ought to be thinking about and taking to strengthen our healthcare system on a broader level? That's a good question. I mean, that's a big question. I don't I wish I had an easy answer for that. I, I will tell you that I worry a lot uh, because the students I advise and talk to are already showing what I consider signs of burnout by first or second year, things that I had seen in, you know, more advanced trainees after long weeks of call, and they're already appearing to be burned out by second year. And I think we're at risk of creating a generation of burned out doctors if they're already coming out of second year med school feeling like this is overwhelming. And so I spend a lot of time trying to just normalize things for med students. I don't think uh, it's told enough that it's supposed to be hard. I think a lot of students feel like they're the only ones that are struggling and everyone else has it easy. And so, you know, I try to spend a lot of time letting people know how normal it is to find this to be a difficult process. And for us as educators, 
anything we can do to peel back sort of mandatory onerous requirements uh, out, of, out of a thought of trying to make burnout less frequent is worth doing. We're not training Marine recruits and we don't need that type of atmosphere. And the more we can treat people like adults and give them freedom and try to take away some of the onerous things that they're required to do, the better it is. Are there some examples of onerous tasks that you see either house staff or attendings having to do that you wish, gosh, this has such little value in the real world and the burden is so great. Let's just get rid of this thing. Well, I can only speak for myself, but when I give a conference, I feel like if you don't want to be there, you shouldn't come. I mean, you're an adult, you're a learner, you're going to be a physician one day, you're going to have to know something about EKGs or whatever I'm talking about in that particular day. But, you know, I don't like having students in the classroom that are forced to be there. I did some graduate work between undergrad and med school. And, you know, in a lot of graduate schools, attendance is not mandatory. And this is the way I think a lot of other graduate students are taught. So, you know, my feeling is uh, that the less mandatory things we have, the better. Now, if you don't show up for anything, then you're going to pay a price when it comes to your grade or your assessment or things like that. So it's not like you can just coast through medical school, but I personally don't like mandatory lectures very much. I always thought it would be interesting to have, instead of paying tuition all at once, let's say the tuition is $30,000, you know, or $36,000. I always thought it'd be cool to kind of split it out by lecture. Yeah. Right. And then you'd have to walk to the front of the class and hand the $100 note over and then go sit down. And then it would make each lecture really remind you, like, was that worth $100 or or was it not? You know, (laughs) that'd be a good It's true. It's totally true. But unfortunately, at medical schools, you know, you can make a real name for yourself if you build a huge clinic taking care of surgical patients or something like that. But if you have the most highly attended lectures by the med students, it, it carries a much smaller amount of credibility in terms of your career. And I think med students feel that because they can see that where are faculty putting their attention? Oh, you know, they're operating all day. They're reading imaging studies all day. They're doing something other than teaching me because that's what's valued. And I think this also contributes to the feeling of burnout. So we're a teaching company, as is Boards and Beyond, and, and I'd love to learn about some knowledge gap. Maybe it's something about cardiology or something about your experience in running a company. But any sort of myth that you want to break for us or any sort of um, you know, gap that you commonly have to kind of explain to people over and over again that you might be able to clear up for me personally or for our audience would be very appreciated? So the biggest gap I see is people taking care of patients by a recipe or an algorithm without understanding where the data comes from. To give you an example from my field, you know, in cardiology, we prescribe ACE inhibitors for heart failure. They're one of the main drugs we use to treat them. Well, the reason we prescribed those drugs is because there were a number of clinical trials that showed very specific benefits in very specific groups to patients with heart failure. And I wish more people understood that instead of just saying heart failure equals ACE inhibitor, because it has a huge importance when you're taking care of patients. So certain patients, older patients, certain comorbidities, they weren't in any of those trials of ACE inhibitors. They've never been studied. We don't know if the drugs benefit that group. So we'll still use them in that group, but if there's a reason where the drug might carry a risk, that's a group that doesn't need to take that medication. And this is true for everything we do. Every antibiotic is based on certain data. Every imaging study is based on certain data. So the one thing I spend the most time with trainees doing is talking about how do you know that treatment is going to help that patient? How do you know it's going to work? How do you know the risks 
of an adverse outcome are, are smaller than the risks of a benefit for this particular patient. And I think because we start by teaching mechanisms early on in med school, we sort of imply all these treatments must work, right? Because they have a mechanism and it's plausible. And it's only when you get to a higher level that you start to understand the evidence behind them and the caveats and the groups they work in and they don't work in. And so that is sort of my biggest peeve or, or fear in medicine is I, I don't like to see trainees become these sort of cookbook practitioners who just reflexively say, this is the right answer, you need to get it. I want them to understand what the data is that that right answer comes from so that they can tweak it to the particular patient they're dealing with. Now, I guess a challenge that I've always felt myself, and I'd like to know how you deal with this challenge, is that the amount of data is overwhelming. Like in the last 12 months, for example, with a single infectious disease, COVID-19, it is bewildering how many papers have come out. And you know, if I'm an ID doctor, I do pediatric ID, then I don't get the privilege of just having to deal with one infection. There are many, many other ones that I have to kind of stay on top of to some degree. And so how do you personally stay on top of the new literature that comes out on, you know, the latest and greatest treatments for heart failure? What is your own practice to stay on top of it? One problem is the new latest and greatest research. But another problem is just knowing the tried and true research too. So especially in cardiology, there's always a, a fancy new medication. It's usually very expensive, uh, not generic, and it has a positive trial. I'm always very dubious of those types of interventions till it's been around for a while. And we've seen, especially, it used to be to get FDA approval, you had to have multiple positive trials. It's now been taken down to only one positive trial in many cases. So we see these therapies come out and they're the latest and greatest thing. And then subsequent therapies show that they don't work. So I keep my eye on the new therapies. But when I look at my patients, a lot of times I see them not even getting the old therapies correctly. They're missing preventative measures that are tried and true and established. So I find, you know, the fellows always want to talk about the latest trial of Entresto or Tefamidus for amyloidosis. And, and I don't mind talking about that, but like, have you talked to your heart failure patient about sodium restriction? Do they understand, you know, how to weigh themselves every day? Like these are the basics that, that there's lots of literature on. It's not in doubt. It's not in question and that they get missed a lot. So this might be my own particular style, but I'm less attracted to the shiny new object that just came out in a clinical trial and more like, are we doing the basics for these patients that we know work? So sort of tied to that then is, you know, let's take your example of salt reduction that's not particularly sexy or glamorous, but it's incredibly effective and hard to do. It probably doesn't take maybe four or seven years of training in the way that we train physicians to do that, but it probably takes a health coach or someone that would actually follow up. I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? It's a big movement in some parts of medicine, but a lot of the chronic conditions that you deal with every day are probably best managed with quitting smoking and losing weight and, you know, those kinds of interventions that, that may not require, you know, necessarily like top board scores or top fellowship positions across the country, but, but just basically a listening ear or someone that can really coach you through that. And yet that's not necessarily what, what we're training for. Do you know what I mean? Yes. No, I know what you mean. It's a really interesting topic, but before my life got consumed by boards and beyond, my main focus was heart failure and, and preventing hospitalizations. And so we got into a lot of this because usually, you know, patients with multiple hospitalizations, it's not because no one prescribed them the latest drug from a clinical trial. It's because of some basics like 
difficulty filling prescriptions and managing diet and things like that. My personal feeling is that highly trained specialists, when they say things like that are important, it gives it a lot of credence it doesn't usually get. A lot of times in the trainee's eyes and in just everyone's eyes, that stuff is like poo-pooed by the specialist. Like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the surgeon. I don't talk about salt restriction. I don't talk about how to make sure you fill your prescriptions. But when, when I was willing to give some time to that, all of a sudden it ramped up in its importance for everybody. And so you can certainly farm some of that out. You know, it may not be the best use of my time to go through every item in some patient's pantry and, and talk about the sodium quantity. But at the same time, if I always say, yeah, I'm the cardiologist, I, I only deal with, uh, you know, refractory AFib, go talk to the nurse for your sodium management, it, it becomes not an important thing in our field. So I think it would be wonderful if we had super highly trained specialists who know the latest drugs and procedures and imaging techniques, who also said, hey, you know, I'll talk to my patient about how to weigh themselves every morning and call me when their weight goes up to the screen for swelling as well. That makes so much sense. I appreciate that reframing. So we have a lot of students and early career health professionals in our audience that are going to be listening to you. What is your advice, you know, your final kind of parting words about meeting the challenges of the moment? You talked about kind of the stress that they may be feeling, but you obviously have a longer career arc than a lot of folks that are just starting out. So what advice or suggestions do you have for them? I mean, the thing I spend the most time talking with the students I advise about is how you've got to find a way to stay positive in this career. To get into med school, I feel like you, you have to be so hypervigilant. You know, when's the next test? What's my grade? Am I above the mean? What did everyone else get? And so although that thinking gets you into med school, it also sets you up for a career where you're just going to burn out because there's always step one and step two, and then who's picked for chief and who got fellowship and who got promoted. And it's, it's a never ending battle down a dark hole. If you're always looking at what everyone else is doing and trying to measure yourself according to them. So I spend a lot of time talking about this term is so annoying to students sometimes, but for lack of a better word, wellness and like being happy and finding a way to draw satisfaction from simple things that you have control over, figuring that out. And it's a learned skill like anything else. It doesn't come natural and you don't just learn it in one day, but finding a way to stay positive in this field is really the most important thing. And, and you can start early on in medical school burning out or saying, you know what, I'm not going to worry about what this other person got on their UWorld percentage compared to mine. I learned something from the practice questions. So this was a great day for me and I'm going to go to bed happy. You know, the more you can practice that kind of thinking, the better it will help you later on when there's long nights of call and difficult times in practice and all the things that you and I know about you deal with every day as a physician. Well, that's a fantastic piece of wisdom to leave us with. I appreciate that. Sure. So thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Ryan. Your career is phenomenal and very interesting to hear your thoughts on how you would make changes. I enjoyed that. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for everyone for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>